This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. How are we today? Tired, tired. <laughs> We've just been complaining about how tired we are. <laughs> We're all so tired. But that's all right. We're going to bring the energy to today's episode, regardless yes. of the tiredness. Mm-hmm. We can Correct. do it. We can do it. We hope. I mean, what was it going to say? We hope you're all feeling tired too. No, (laughs) we hope that if you are feeling as tired in your bones as we are, that, uh, you know, you're sitting back, you're somewhere relaxing, although you're very likely on your commute, maybe. Oh, wait, actually, no. Maybe not. Many of you are not on your commute anymore. So perhaps you're sitting in your backyard or your living room sofa. Relaxing. We hope you're relaxing. And if you are on a commute, because some of us still have to leave our houses to go to our jobs to Mm -hmm. teach the youth of the world, (laughs) we hope you're okay. (laughs) Very good, Lauren. Very good. I had to commute yesterday and I tell you what, this kid, bloody kids, kids these days, Lauren, Mm. kids these bloody days. Sorry for that rant (laughs) that was going on. But no, this teenage boy sat right next to me and like what? leant into my like leant in front of me into my face dude why and I was like, what are you doing move it's away social distancing time distance yourself sir and we were on the train and there oh. were plenty of empty seats and oh i have God. no idea why, why this... did he do that i don't know God. i don't know God. so now i'm like if i get sick i don't know why gonna hunt that teenage boy down you will ride that train every day until you find him again <laughs> but after i've recovered from being sick of course of because course. you are responsible because i'm a responsible person i don't go <laughs> sitting right next to people on the train and breathing in their face okay. anyway well actually funnily enough this is a totally accidentally and totally a coincidence but this is an episode that is going to feature very very minorly uh, well, no, it's not a minor detail of her life, but we are going to discuss the plague very I knew, briefly. I knew, <laughs> I knew you were going to say I that. did not there's, do it on purpose. There's always a plague. There's always a plague. Always I feel plague. like COVID has just alerted us to how maybe not special this actually is. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I think it's interesting because now it means, I reckon if we go back through so many of the women that we've already looked at, so many of them were living through plague times. Yeah. But it's only this season that we've really paid attention yes. to that. And it's been like, like when, oh. when somebody, you know, mentions a, a number to you and then suddenly every car number plate you see, every street sign you pass has that number on it. You're yeah. like, was the number 42 here all of, Is this a sign from the universe that I'm supposed to pay attention to the yeah. number 42? It's like, no, the number was there all along. Yeah, You've exactly. just been living a life of 
ignorance and naivete. Yep. Blissful ignorance. So we'll we'll get some plague times today. That's a little great. bit of plague times. So plague times. <laughs> if it's the Black Death we're talking, then we're not, going. No, we? not no. quite. No, not different quite. plague. Different plague. We're <gasps> in the seventeenth century today, and we are in Mexico, which is Hooray. one of your favorite places, Alicia. It is actually one of my favorite places in the world. So yeah. I just, it's great. Viva la Mexico. (laughs) So we are coming to Mexico in the year 1651 when our vigor today, Juana, was born. So Juana Inez de la Cruz, she was born a bastard. A bastard. (gasps) I know, a bastard. But by the way, nice pronunciation of her name. Very good. Oh, thank you. Full marks. I didn't practice, but I'm glad that you approve. (laughs) (laughs) I do. So she was born to Pedro Manuel de Aspaje. Aspaje? I don't know, <laughs> but I feel like that was less good pronunciation. Less good. He was a Spanish captain and Isabel Ramirez, and she was a Criola woman. Now, Criola, I don't know. Are you familiar with the term, Alicia? I'm pretty we've, sure we've referred to it before. A few yes, times. we yeah. have, because we have sort of been in this area of the world particularly during the Spanish Mm. colonial times. And so Criola, this means that she was a woman of Spanish descent, but born in the Americas. And so this separated her from somebody like Manuel, who was born in Spain. And so there's the peninsula Spaniards, the proper I was born in Spain Spaniards, and then those who descend from those who were born Spaniards. And so there's a very, very, very minor difference in terms of privilege between those two groups, but those two groups are really at the top of society. And so even though she was born not as well off, so she didn't have a lot of money, the family were not like super rich or anything well off, she was still of this sort of elite class. Mm -hmm. So during Dela Cruz's time, Mexico City had a population of about 100,000 people, out of which only 20,000 were of this sort of class level. Mm. And so, sorry, you said we were in the 17th century. Yeah. So round about what year are we talking? Well, she here? was born in 1651. Okay, right. So the middle of, yeah, right. middle, so middle middle of the century. Yep. Yeah. So there's really about a you know 20, 80% split. And then the other 80,000 people were of other ethnicities, including a lot of Indigenous people and then mixed. So this is really important caste system that existed in New Spain. But she was still, even amongst this elite sort of cast, she was obviously a bastard and that kind of lowers her ranking a little bit. Mm. And her dad was absent for much of her childhood, but she still had a comfortable life because her mum's dad owned a hacienda, which is Uh an estate called a panoya. And it was here that she grew up. You know, this is a very, very common story that we have told a million times before, but she grew up reading ancient books in her grandfather's library, writing poetry. She taught herself languages, like she taught herself Latin at a very young age. Impressive. Very. And she also taught herself the Aztec language, Nahuatl. And these are not the kinds of subjects that were taught to girls. Like she also taught herself like ancient Greek logic and rhetoric. She was into science and maths and music. She was just this child genius who just soaked up everything that she could. She had older sisters, her half sisters, and she would sort of you know, creep around listening into their classes Mm. because she was just voracious for knowledge. But this is not the stuff that was typically taught to girls. You know, she was 
very driven and determined though. And she recalls as a child in a very famous, I guess, sort of thesis of hers called The Reply, which we're going to talk about later. She recalls that as a child, and I quote, I refrained from eating cheese because someone had told me it would make you stupid. And my urge to learn was stronger than my wish to eat. Powerful as this is in children. (laughs) That's great. But at the same time, I don't know, maybe I'd rather be stupid because fuck me. (laughs) Stupid and eat cheese. Cheese is great. (laughs) I love cheese. I do love cheese as well. That's a hard one. (laughs) Choosing between books and cheese is really, that's probably one of life's greatest challenges. I don't know if I could ever make such a decision. Books be cheese. Yeah. Seriously? That is a tough one. I probably would choose books. I've never heard that cheese makes you stupid. I know that it gives you cheese nightmares if you cheese eat it. Cheese dreams. Cheese yep. dreams if yep. you eat it too yep. close to going to bed. And that yeah. I think is scientifically I think that correct. is true because we've been on some retreats together <laughs> and we always eat the biggest cheese platters on our retreats and yeah. I have had some weird dreams. And we those. yeah, we eat them just before we go to bed. Yeah. And we go to bed full of cheese and then <laughs> weird dreams. Exactly. So that's true. But whether or not it makes you proven. stupid. Mm. Anyway, so she didn't eat the cheese yeah so along with forsaking cheese she also like begged her mom to allow her to go so they lived outside of mexico city and she begged her mom to allow her to disguise herself as a boy Ah. and go to the city so that she could study because of course she was not allowed to because she's juana and not juan and so she could never hope to enter the walls of the university and take up a formal education but nonetheless um she was actually sent to live in the city eventually when she was a teenager um her mum sort of was like yeah all right I recognize you're you're a bit of a child prodigy there's something here that's pretty special you can go and live in the city I think it was with her aunt I read conflicting accounts one account said with her grandfather another account said with her aunt but I'm pretty sure because she was on her grandfather's estate she was already with her grandfather maybe okay so anyway regardless she's in the city big city And her intelligence is starting to actually like attract some attention, which is kind of weird because she is this relatively obscure figure, even Mm. within this, you know, kind of cast that we were talking Mm. about, the elite elite cast. There's still 20,000 people who belong to this elite social group. But her intelligence nonetheless attracts the attention of the viceroy. How old is she? She's a teenager. This is when she's like 15. Okay. Yes. And she's become so famous for her wits and her fucking genius that the representative of the king in Mexico, the viceroy, Antonio Sebastián de Toledo Marquis de Mancera. Is that okay? Very nice. Is that all right? That sounded beautiful. You got there. Yeah. He invited her to court as a lady-in-waiting. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And this is quite a step up. Just from yes. seeing her in like what, yeah. at like parties and I guess social so. gatherings, I guess like and you things. know, rumors start to swirl about this like intriguing, super intelligent. The other thing is, Alicia. Oh, was, was she, we've only talked about her wits so yeah, far, but I, I want yeah, you yeah. know where this is going. Don't she you? was also beautiful. She was very beautiful, famously she was very beautiful. beautiful, very beautiful young woman, mm-hmm. very intelligent, very beautiful young woman, and so she is quite a darling of the scene and um she comes under the tutelage of 
The Viserine, Leonor Careto. And I think she was Italian. Um, so she's the wife, obviously, of the Viceroy. And this is quite a rise in station for a little illegitimate Juana. And for many women, I guess this would have been a dream because she is under the eye of the two most influential people in Mexico, yeah. you know, the most, the most amazing, powerful woman at court. She has all of these rich, important bachelors swanning around her, uh, you know, just waiting, looking for these, you know, beautiful young brides to pluck and take to their estates and raise their noble children. And she really was a very attractive prospect. Mm. Her illegitimacy was her main flaw, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But her beauty does make up for it. Of course. Yes, of course. And, you know, also if she's very intelligent and very witty, then that is very attractive. Mm. It was. And actually so much so that the Viceroy himself wondered if she was actually too good to be true. Because how could this young woman be so very beautiful and so very intelligent? And he actually started to wonder if... I don't know how you fake it, but he was kind of wondering if she was a fake, basically. Like, is this actually, like, was she born a genius, basically? Mm. Or is there some trick to this? <laughs> how do you trick that, though? Maybe you're just, like, really good at memorizing, like, a certain select number of things that sound really smart. Mm, but you know like if anyone actually quizzed you deeper on it you'd be like oh, oh, oh I don't know I just oh. I just memorized the poem man <laughs> I don't, I'm not gonna you know so maybe that's what they thought she just memorized a bunch of stuff but maybe doesn't actually understand it but hang on memorizing stuff is still learning stuff mm. but yeah of course like yeah. yeah I just mean like you know that only takes you so far on Bloom's taxonomy of higher order thinking this year. <laughs> you know you're gonna get so to the, the critical and the creative steps that's where we really that's where we I get to see analysis. her shine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where you get a HDs. Yeah. So <laughs> basically he gathered all of these scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, theologians. He gets them all together at court and he brings her into this room. Like imagine this would be the what? worst viva in history. This is just because he's suspicious. Yeah. Of her. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh. She's not really prepared for this. Well, no, just, who is? throws these questions at her and all of these men (laughs) these important fucking like scientists and stuff are sitting around just like "Mm, yes oh yeah she answered that well or like you know yeah imagine that like the worst conference experience of your life (laughs) times 10 that's (laughs) ridiculous Yeah, yeah. But she smashed it. Like, apparently she responded with elegance and with total aplomb and they all loved her and she did amazingly. And then the viceroy was like, okay, all right, cool. That's fine. You're legit. You win the you win the $25,000. Yeah. Was this yeah. like, yeah, was it like the chase? And he was like the... <laughs> yeah, the chaser. The chaser. And she yeah. was, yeah. Right, <laughs> and this, of course, made her even more intriguing to the men at court. And she was offered several hands in marriage. I love that. That's what you do. It's like, oh, yeah. smart and pretty. Well, <laughs> I'll, marry I'll, marry I'll marry you. I'll marry you. And probably what, what all else? of those men were like at least 20 years older than her. Probably. And no, probably not half as smart as she was either. Although they would never admit Admit to that. that. (laughs) But of course, I will let you guess. Alicia, please tell me how did Juana feel about these offers of marriage? I feel like she said no to all of them. 
Because she's got higher aspirations in life, man. Yes, indeed. And she was really not interested in those, you know, typical frivolous things of the other mm. women of court. As you said, her aspirations were much, much higher. Of her hair, she wrote, I used to cut four or five fingers width from mine, keeping track of how far it had formerly reached and making it my rule that if by the time it grew back to that point, I did not know such and such a thing which I had set out to learn as it grew, I would cut it again as a penalty for my dullness. For I did not consider it right that a head so bare of knowledge should be dressed with hair, knowledge being the most desirable ornament. Ah, that's great. Yeah. I quite like that. So she's... Given up cheese and she's cutting off all her hair <laughs> because she's very dedicated to her, to her uh, studies. I like it. <laughs> so there's this. But then also they realising that if she stayed at court, she'd have to keep like fobbing off these kinds of men forever. And let's be honest, like this is court. We would be in the six, late 1660s by now. Like the men at court would be drunk, foppish Mm. tarts you know <laughs> like they just would gamble and what is drink and that's probably pretty much all they did and i don't think she was very enamored by any of them at all mm. and so of course she did what women for centuries have done before her when they have wanted to avoid <gasps> men for the rest of their lives they join the nunnery Indeed. She said that she found it to be the least unreasonable and most becoming choice. Makes it sense. It is. You know what? We've talked a lot about nunneries over the seasons that yeah. we've we've had. And we do like a nunnery. We do like a nunnery. <laughs> and they were genuinely like, you know, a lot of nunneries were not very nice, but they were really places of escape in Absolutely. a lot of situations. Absolutely. They could a hundred percent be a sanctuary mm, from the world mm-hmm. because yep. it was pretty much the only way that as a woman in this type of society at this point in time, you could have any autonomy. Yeah. And if you joined the right order, which she does. So she first joined the convent of Disgalst, Carmelites of St. Joseph. But she found quickly that these nuns were like very much the pious kind. <laughs> like she was like, oh, no, <laughs> that's wait, not these the nuns kind are, you want. Yeah, these nuns are genuinely into God. This is not my scene. Yeah. And so she left them after three months and she joined another convent called the Order of St. Jerome. And this was much more of a ah, we're going to leave you alone to read your books kind of a convent, which is exactly what she wanted. And because you're totally right, if it was the right order, it was a way of dedicating your life to something other than a man. Yeah, yeah. And if you had like even further than that, as we've discussed before, you could even get yourself a party convent. You could. Which was okay, the they best were some, kind. <laughs> some party convents, which was just a lot of like, let's be honest, wanton sex and just Such. just girly good times. They just had Such a good time. Good times. The the episode of the Nuns of Ladan is a good one to listen to if you want to hear more stories about a party convent. But if you also want to hear about the super pious kind of convent, <laughs> then perhaps you should check out a recent episode on Catherine of Siena. Yeah. So you've so got there's many. There's a whole gamut. <laughs> Of, like, all um, the many flavors convents. of convent life. 
Uh, so there's a particular scholar. There's many, many, many scholars of Sor Juana because she is, for very good reason, as we will come to see, but Octavio Paz is one of the foremost scholars of her. And in his book, Sor Juana or the Traps of Faith, he attempts to answer the question of why a young, beautiful woman with, you know, so much ahead of her really chose to enter the convent. And he basically suggests that it was, obviously, as we've already kind of, you know, said, it is a way to avoid the trappings of marriage and obtain authority and freedom without a man. And mm. he suggests particularly that Sor Juana doesn't actually really ever exhibit any interest in men or sex, even though she actually does write a lot of love poetry, uh, which was commissioned, a lot of it, but nonetheless for a woman who belongs to a religious order, she writes an awful lot about love. Mm. And in response to this writer, now I don't know if this is Alicia or Alicia, Hey. Or Alicia, because it's if spelled it's, the same as yours, and it could be any of those. <laughs> if it's a Spanish one, it's probably said like mine. It's probably said probably Alicia, 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 yeah. Alicia Gaspar de Alba. However, um, she disagrees, and she argues that Sor Juana was probably attracted to women, and suggests that Paz's reading of her is homophobic. <laughs> so, well, actually, I was going to say Paz is quite a problematic mm. scholar in a and lot of ways. A lot of oh. what he wrote is from the 80s. Yeah. He was low-key misogyny. Well, just. this is what, <laughs> yeah, this is sort of what the Alba suggests. Yeah. So, yeah, but Paz has written extensively about Delacruz, so a lot of the kind of canon scholarship about mm. her does come mm. from him. But, yeah, I don't think that we should necessarily let that obscure the way that we read her story. So Because, yeah. yeah. obviously, we you know, this episode is like what we, we normally talk for about 75 minutes to a, a, you know, ish, right? Yeah. We do not have time to go down all of the various scholarship rabbit holes. No, of course not. Of which there are many, but just know that they exist and that there are these various readings of her intentions to go into the convent. And obviously then like what personally was happening with her because there's another scholar who disagrees with both of them and Mm. says that to even really attempt to classify her sexuality is a misreading of her because she's just a complicated woman. Yeah, exactly. And you know? what effect does it actually have on the work yes, that she and may- went on to do? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you can actually just be complex and be multiple and be many things. So, mm. yes, that's just on that issue of why would such an amazing young woman enter into a convent? But anyway, so in this convent, she did have a pretty luxurious life. She had her own apartment. It was two levels she had a maid, which was not actually really uncommon at all in convents, particularly if you were of a particular class. You know, you had the nuns who came in with their huge dowries and the nuns who didn't have dowries were their maids. Mm. Basically, mm-hmm. that's how mm-hmm. it was like a mini court inside yeah. a convent, you know, and convents as well as being a place of solitude, they were really also a place of privilege, mm. which is, mm. I think, a really important point to note. And Juana, particularly in a Spanish colony, she was only able to enter because she was of Spanish descent. So yeah, so it wasn't just a place of sanctuary. It was a place of luxury that was really only open to her because of her race. And so yes, while she was also, you know, illegitimate and had those cards sort of stacked against her to an extent, she would not have been able to have this life of stillness and solitude to study and dedicate herself to her writing and thinking and philosophy if it had Mm. not been for the privilege that she had and existed within the world. And I really want to make 
note of that. <laughs> but while the Order of St. Jerome was more relaxed than the other one and allowed her that kind of studious atmosphere with her huge apartment and many, many, many books, it still had restrictions. Like she wasn't allowed to leave, you know, none of the nuns were. And she communicated with those outside through a locutorium, which is Latin for I speak. So basically this is like the specific room where you're allowed to receive visitors. And even when you do, you're veiled. So they still can't really see you properly. So you're still kept kind of separated from the world, but she didn't really need to be in the world because she had everything that she wanted. And that was exactly what she wanted. She wanted to devote herself to this inner life. And she ended up with this library that became one of the largest in the Americas. Some say it boasted up to four, even 5,000 books, which is no mean feat in Mexico at that time. And along with this, she had scientific and astronomical instruments with which she studied the planet. She had musical instruments. She was really into like Pythagorean kinds of approaches. I don't know much. I don't really understand much about it, but something to do with music theory. She was doing something with maths and music theory because she was that kind of smart person. And so she really was in that kind of truest sense of the world. Yeah. A scholar. Yeah. And so she spent a lot of her time reading and writing. She wrote scholarly works, poetry, plays, music, and I'll go into this a bit more in a little bit. She was also the convent's archivist and accountant. Accountant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. You need one. It's very you important do. Role. No, that's true. You do. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 She hosted intellectual gatherings, I guess, as much as she could in this locatorium. <laughs> And while some of the gossip from the other nuns annoyed her because they were, you know, but living with a bunch of other women, I guess mm-hmm. they're all nattering in her. Oh, did you hear about someone? Someone did you hear about someone? She's like, I just want to read guys like leave me alone. <laughs> and her scholarly life annoyed them as well. So much so there was actually this one nun who issued a formal complaint that she was studying too much (laughs) and said she shouldn't be allowed to study. And so she actually at one point had all of her books banned from her for three months. Um, She was not allowed to access her library for three months. And so instead she kind of like turned her attention to natural phenomena. So What's so wrong with studying? Well, okay, so the problem was that it was not considered to be very religious because she's studying everything. She's studying the natural world. She's studying the sciences. She's studying music. Like she's not dedicating herself to theological or biblical study, which is what you're supposed to do when you're inside a convent. And she actually did have justification for spending so much of her time studying non-religious things. She, and this is again a quote, I went on continually directing the course of my study toward the eminence of sacred theology. To reach this goal, I considered it necessary to ascend the steps of human arts and sciences. For how can one who has not mastered the style of the ancillary branches of learning hope to understand that of the queen of them all? So here she's sort of calling theology the queen of all sciences. Like this is at the top. But how can you expect me to understand something as massive and huge and important as theology Mm. if I don't first understand the natural world? Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually a fucking brilliant way to justify the need to study anything that you want. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You You can pretty much turn that in any way you like, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, you really want me to understand God? Well, I need to spend some time looking at these trees and understanding how their root structures work because uh, that'll help me understand why God made them that way, right? Yeah, clearly, clearly. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really smart. And during this period of time when she had her books banned, she kind of still turned her eye to all of this natural phenomena. So, for example, she spent a lot of time like in the kitchen helping out you know, as you do. And she would note things like the fact that an egg kept together when it was fried in oil, but not when it was fried in syrup, you know, so she's still frying an egg in syrup. (laughs) Nuns. Maybe they didn't have any oil. I know that's probably not the point of this story, (laughs) but that just does not seem to be the thing that I would fry an egg in. Either way, my point, Alicia. Yeah, sorry. Your actual point. Come back to the actual point, please. Yes. Well, yes. what is my point, Alicia? What do you think my point is? I don't know, but did it work? Did any, <laughs> did like. <laughs> Her observation was an egg does not hold together when mm-hmm. cooked in syrup. Yeah. But it does in oil. But at the point is that she is paying attention to all of these little details of the world. She wants to understand everything. She doesn't really take anything for granted. Yeah. You mm. know, she has like that insular lens on everything all the time. And she developed relationships with a range of scholars and she maintained the patronage of the Viceroy and the Viserine which did give her a very luxurious kind of freedom and esteem within the convent. And obviously having the patronage of the Viceroy and the Viserine is a very huge honour and would give you a lot of esteem Mm, in the convent. And a lot of jealousies as well, of course. She also had a particular confessor who will come up. I can't remember his name. I don't think I wrote it down. I apologize. But (laughs) this confessor was, he was like super excited when she first joined because of course she was this Marvel child. But then, yeah, again, because she was so interested in everything that was not deemed to be appropriate for a nun, that relationship kind of soured a little bit. So these relationships with scholars and with the Viceroy, etc. meant that she was also able to send her works into the world for publication. Ooh. And a collection of her works, Inundation Castellita, were published not just in Mexico, but also in Spain in 1689. And then she also kind of became the court's uh, like unofficial poet laureate, you know, like their official mm-hmm. unofficial poet. <laughs> yeah. And she was commissioned for a huge range of works for religious services, for state festivals, and then just for funsies, you know, just like... For, hey, just for funsies. Yeah, like write me a love poem, Sor Juana. You know, like you're really good at this. Can I have... And, and she wrote like everything. She's deemed to have kind of bridged the gap between the Hispanic Baroque and the Enlightenment. So this is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we're in 1689. We're creeping towards the 18th century. The Enlightenment is just on the horizon. Yeah. And so a lot of the poetic modes of the time, she was writing sonnets. She was writing ballad romances, satire, allegory, drama. And she was influenced by religious as well as sort of classical and secular sources and this is kind of where the problems for her started to arise because she's not Mm. just influenced by religious sources and she was influenced by historical writers she was influenced by a range of her contemporaries and she responded to her contemporaries you know other poets that were writing at the same time in ways that really demonstrated her real deep and broad awareness of forms and styles. And she was very inventive and she was considered to be very elegant and funny as well. Mm. 
But of course, things couldn't be amazing forever. You know, she can't be the court's darling for all time. There's got to be some complication. Yeah. So... Ah, I did write down the name of her confessor. Her confessor was the Jesuit, Antonio Nunes de Miranda. Very nice. And in the late 80s, he kind of publicly maligned her. So they had been really close. I mean, he was her confessor. For a nun, there's nobody that you're closer to. This is the person that you, you know, you share your deepest, darkest everything with, right? He is your intercession between you and God, right? Mm -hmm. And he came out publicly against her, like after, because she went into the convent in 1667. And so he'd been her confessor for like 20 years and then suddenly, you know, turned on her very publicly. And this was the beginning of these, well, these really big ramifications for Juana because he was very influential, had obviously the ear of a lot of very other influential people. And then in 1688, the Viceroy and the Viserine, they left Mexico. And so her protectors, her patrons were gone. And so things are just, yeah, there's sort of wheels starting to come off the wagon a little bit. And it's also important to keep in mind at the time, I guess, what was happening more broadly in terms of religious and ideas debates about, you know, who gets to write, who gets to speak, Mm. who gets to interpret the Bible, all these sort of things. And so in 1690, a bishop, the Bishop of Puebla, he published a critique that Sor Juana had written. And he published this critique under a pseudonym, Sor Philothea, which means love of God. Mm -hmm. And this was a kind of common nun-like pseudonym that was used when people want to publish things anonymously. It wasn't particularly anonymous though. And he published this critique, which was written by Sor Juana, without her permission. And allegedly he did it because of some of these concerns that the church was worried that she was becoming basically too big for her boots. She Mm -hmm. was too interested in earthly matters and not interested enough. You know, she wasn't staying in her lane. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm -hmm. She wasn't deemed to be devoted to her faith. And so this critique was actually titled by him, letter worthy of Athena. So it actually kind of, it's like a double-handed thing. It's sort of like a backwards compliment, you know, like it starts by praising her. Like it's called letter worthy of Athena. So he's acknowledging how sort of intelligent she is. He acknowledges the power of what she writes, but then he publishes her critique to sort of let her cause her own fall. If you know what Mm, I mean? mm -hmm. So, yeah, so this letter retitled by him to Letter Worthy of Athena was written by Sor Juana in response to a 40-year-old sermon by a Portuguese Jesuit preacher called Antonio Virreira. And in it, she criticised this preacher who was the confessor of Christina of Sweden. That's off for some reason. I thought you were going to say Christina Aguilera. That was the, <laughs> that was where my brain went. That was the Christina that my brain went straight to. Christina Aguilera's confession. That's amazing. <laughs> I, don't I don't know why that was where my brain went. <laughs> no, not that Christina. <laughs> no, a different one. <laughs> so basically, she criticised some of his claims, and she claimed in response to this preacher that God's greatest gift to man was not beneficence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that actually. His greatest gift was to suspend beneficence. So Mm. God's greatest gift is withholding his greatest gifts from us. 
That sounds okay. like a shit gift. It's a <laughs> shit gift though. Like that's like if somebody bought you a really cool gift and they were like, I've bought you this really cool gift but I'm not going to give it to you because the true gift in this gift is me not giving you a gift. <laughs> and you're well, like, actually, the true gift would be if gift. you just gave me the fucking gift. Well, she claimed that he, God knows that his gifts might damage us. We're not able to deal with them. <laughs> so this is also what I'm going to do with gifts in the future. I'm going to buy people gifts and I'm going to be like, I've purchased you this gift, okay. but I don't think you can handle this There's, gift. Th- well, you've got to understand so. the, the philosophy. And this is <laughs> the foot. This is the All right, version. I get it. Okay, it's yeah, a yeah, philosophy. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I know you're making a joke. you got to do it. It's a yeah, podcast. We understand. You've got to respond. You gotta, we got to partake in this rap hall more. Yeah, no, you know, that's gotta, what we you do. you got to put it in. you got to put it in this there. this podcast. So in withholding his gift from us, he's doing nothing. So he's not interfering. His greatest gift is then indifference in basically just letting us get on with things ourselves without interfering. And I think when you put it that way, without interfering, it starts to make more sense. Because God, because he has infinite power, he could make us all perfect. He could make humans perfect right? And this would surely please him if he could just go, yep, magic wand, everything is perfect. Yay, aren't I such a great God? Everything's cool. But in doing so, he would make us his slaves because he would have removed all free will. Mm. Okay. And without free will, this is where I'm like, yeah, right, cool. Yeah. Because without free will, how would we have self-determination and how would we have agency and how would we make our own decisions and learn from our own mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But Sulchwana, of course, says without free will, how would we demonstrate our love for God? And that's also, I guess, true. But basically, how could we learn ourselves? How could we do good ourselves? How could Mm. we become better people ourselves if God intervened and made us all perfect in Mm. his image? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's really the argument. Which is quite a controversial take for a nun to make, especially yeah. against a Jesuit preacher. Mm. She also argued that Christ wished to be loved not for his own sake. So not that by loving us we would love him in return, okay? Yeah. But he for just this- wanted he just wanted a whole bunch of people. We just wanted to feel loved. He just really wanted to feel loved. That's right. And that's mm. what she's saying is wrong mm-hmm. about what this guy said. You know, Jesus doesn't want our love. He doesn't care whether or not we love him. In loving him, we love each other, oh. right? So he wants us to love for the sake of others. So we should love others for our own sakes, not for the love that it might bring in return. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so these are her kind of selfless. quite a few it's other selfless. controversial takes, but these are the kind of really big controversial takes that she made. And I think if you know, I mean, for people who aren't particularly religious or don't know much about Like this maybe doesn't sound like much, but this is a hot, hot take. Mm, Like this is mm. controversial shit. It's a hot take. (laughs) It's a hot take. Spicy, spicy stuff. And this really opened a can of worms. And the thing is she actually may have even been tricked into writing this down because it actually, this critique came out of just a conversation that she was having with one of her scholar friends um, when he visited her at the convent. And after this conversation, the scholar was like, hey, yeah, you said some really cool, smart stuff. You should write it. Could you write it down and send it to me? You know, like compose it as a letter and send it to me. And that's what she did. And it took her a few months. She kind of, you know, spent her time thinking about it. She composed it properly. And I guess she wrote this letter a bit like an essay. She sent it off to her friend 
And then somehow it got from her friend's hands into the bishop's hands and the bishop published it. And he published it in order to embarrass her, really, and to sort of like out her as somebody who's spending too much time thinking about not religious stuff or is is like how dare she question, you know, the, these kind of really big important Jesuit ideas that we have. Was this a setup though? Like, possibly, yeah, quite possibly. Like scholars are kind of a bit, they debate this. It may have been. It may have been a setup. incredibly, incredibly strategic yeah. to be like, oh, can you write down all of these really controversial ideas and then send me these really controversial mm. ideas and then just secretly and without, I don't know how that happened, now these controversial ideas yeah. have made it to other people. Yeah, that's I think why people think that it may have been a bit of a conspiracy to mm. publicly humiliate her and knock her down a peg because she yeah. was getting too big for her boots. Like yeah. she's becoming too influential and she's a woman. <laughs> you know, yeah. she's, like she said, back in your lane. Yeah. And so, of course, so Juana, she was not going to just allow this to happen. And she did write that she felt quite embarrassed for a while, mm. you know, but after you know, starting with her humble boots on, she <laughs> writes this reply. And the reply is very famous. The reply is considered one of the most important kind of proto-feminist texts. We would put it up there with, you know, Mary Wollenstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women. It's that mm-hmm. level of like, yep, this is feminism fucking centuries before anyone had even considered what feminism could ever possibly be. And in this answer, it's called Answer to Sister Folatea, she basically at a very simple level defends women's formal rights to education, their right to speak and interpret scripture, to educate, to publish, basically the rights for women to have a voice. Mm. <laughs> Which they didn't have any rights for. No. So no. she's advocating for rights. Yeah, she's like supporting rights that definitively women do not have yeah don't exist at all in particular she advocated that older women should instruct younger women you know so Mm. that there's Mm -hmm. this sort of passing on of yeah yeah. intergenerational knowledge but also as well as that it would avoid the dangerous medium of male masters oh (laughs) hello she drew on examples of women in the scriptures like deborah who drew up military and political laws and esther who was a fierce negotiator and the queen of sheba she um, mentioned women of history like the oracle nicostrata held by some to have invented latin letters and women of her own time like christina alexandra the queen of sweden we talked about before christina aguilera the yes, uh, who had famously converted to Catholicism in the in the mid seventeenth century, but she was very interested in the arts and sciences, and so this letter is basically it's it's a self defense, you know, mm, she's mm-hmm. claiming these rights for all women, but she's really claiming them a lot for herself as well, yeah. and you know her right to be a scholar her right to write this thesis that she had written, which is essentially, yes, it was a letter, but she's writing a thesis. Let's be real about it, you know, and her right to have an intellectual life. And at the end of the letter, she writes, and again, I quote, if the crime is the Athenagoric letter, was there anything more to that than simply setting forth my views without exceeding the limits our Holy Mother Church allows? If she with her most holy authority does not forbid my doing so, why should others forbid it? 
Mm. Was holding an opinion contrary to the Vieira an act of boldness on my part and not his holding one opposing the three holy church fathers, Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas and John Chrysotom? Is not my mind such as it is as free as his considering their common origin? Is his opinion one of the revealed precepts of holy faith that we should have to believe it blindly? And so she's also saying as well as the idea that women have a right to speak and a right to Mm. a voice and to interpret scripture. She's also saying that men by virtue of being men don't necessarily have that same right. Like just because you're a man doesn't mean that you should be able to speak, but actually you should be able to speak if you are educated. And again, this is where it actually gets a little bit tricky because she's actually not saying that all women should be able to speak either. (laughs) She is kind of, leaving that voice for a select few kind of people but or is it more that she's cautioning that we shouldn't just blindly trust in particular people because of their position yes the people we should be trusting in are actually the people who know what they're talking about who have studied the world who have studied these sorts of things and we should be placing our trust in the right people and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman exactly have done the work and you know what you're talking about we should yes yeah. yeah, that's much more. I, I mean, that's kind that's of how I would interpret I, yeah. that. Like yeah. not so much as like you have no right to speak if you have no education. Yeah. It's more where should we be placing our faith? Well, yes. we should be very selective about where we place our faith and yeah. very selective about the leaders we listen to and, you know, we should question who they are and not simply believe in them blindly because mm. they're a man and this one's a woman. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like is that – maybe that's me just trying to – Yeah, <laughs> I think so. It's not like only people born like this have a right to speak. It's just like don't take for granted that just because you're a man you automatically have more of a right to speak than I do. Mm. Like maybe you shouldn't be the one that we listen to. Yeah. So, yes, because she also wrote other works uh, like, for example, she wrote, I think it was a play, oh, no, a famous poem, Hombres Necios or Foolish Men, which accuses men hmm. of behaving illogically by criticising women. So I think she was kind of interested in that sort of hypocrisy of men saying stupid shit and then accusing women of being stupid, <laughs> you know, or like not being smart enough to speak. She's like, yeah. I see through you, you douchebags. So, yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, this manifesto drew some ire and it was yeah. the subject of much criticism, but I will come to the consequences of that in a moment because, so this was published in like 16. 16- 90 was when the letter was published. In 1692, she published a poem, uh, a really important poem called First Dream. And it's a poem that uses these kind of convoluted forms of the Baroque to talk about the, the soul's quest for knowledge. And this is quite a torturous quest for knowledge. And so in it, night falls and the, the soul breaks away from the body and goes up, you know, getting higher. There's like pyramids. There's all of these kind of geometric sort of shapes and there's a lot of imagery of night and day and natural world and the soul kind of is overlooking all and attempts to gain total knowledge, (laughs) which is no small feat, but it is a 975-line poem. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's considered a lyric masterpiece. Basically, it's an epic that kind of brings all of her philosophical and scholarly pursuits together. You know, it draws on ideas of like Neoplatonism and it follows the Baroque tradition. And so in that way, it's interested in ideas of like deception and it, you know, things like the deceptiveness of dreams and life and death and the effects of night and day and creation and all of these kinds of ideas. And Paz, again, the scholar we were talking about before, he writes that something that really sets her apart, even amongst all of the other extraordinary things that really set her apart, is that she wrote in such a huge variety of forms. And she did, mm. you know. And that she did all of these different forms so well. So as I said, like, you know, she wrote religious plays, political theories, theological essays. And she also, as a poet, was very diverse in the forms that she wrote in. She wrote ballads, sonnets, burlesque epigrams. I don't even know what that is. What is that? I don't know. Oh, my God, that sounds amazing. She also writes, as I said, about love quite often. Mm. And she's interested in... Well, Paz writes, and again, I think this is where we can maybe choose to disagree with Paz. He writes that she delights in the dialectic of passion. And basically it's the writing and the form of writing that is the desire for her. You know, so she expresses her desire through the form of poetry and that she feels that her body is like a sexless flame. (laughs) But again... That's just one reading yeah. because others disagree. Yeah. Well, I mean, Paz was himself a poet, so I think he's taking some poetic lessons yeah. there. And poetry is so open to interpretation mm-hmm. as well. Like, you know, this is one of the great things about the study of poetry is it's as far more, I think, about who's reading the poem than Yes, is, exactly. You know, the old death of the author, for sure. Death yeah. of the author. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that's just a little bit, I mean, you can read more about her works if you want to because it gets very technical very quickly. But if you're interested, there's a lot of scholarship out there about her work. There's a lot of, obviously, her poetry you can read her plays are not actually heaps of her work so survives. can I just ask about her plays what kind of plays did she write like were they comedies or tragedies or like entirely well, religious based plays or again she wrote both yeah right and she wrote like comedies and she wrote satires wow. which is again really weird for a woman to write comedy because mm, women aren't funny <laughs> well it's not just that women aren't funny but like at this period of time comedies could be quite crude like they dealt with things that weren't considered to be proper yeah. or appropriate yeah that's true for women mm-hmm. quite often but apparently she she wrote comedies as a way of in a socially appropriate way critiquing mm. you know the relationships between men and women and critiquing gender stereotypes and things like that so one of her plays pawns of a house is about this you know really strong woman who expresses her desire to be a nun and that's and it's a comedy <laughs> well, that sounds autobiographical at the same yeah time. and has lots of yeah it's kind of these complicated marriage relationships and things like that so she's really yeah i guess she's critiquing traditional mm. gender normative yeah, for sure roles through her comedy and then also some of her stuff was based on like greek myth mm. and which is again i think why a lot of people took issue with her because that's not religious Mm. so yeah so she kind of used a lot of humor in her work she also wrote a lot of music as well 
as I said. So, and apparently, yeah, she was really particularly interested in studying music into Pythagorean tuning. Sure. I know nothing about it, but sounds complicated. Pythagoras was a complicated individual. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, like I said, lots and lots and lots of scholarship about her. And she's influenced a huge number of movements, like obviously like feminism and a lot of political movements. And she's hugely important. I haven't actually got quite to the end of her story, but we are pretty much at the Mm. end. I'm sure you could probably tell because, so she published the dream in 1692. And I guess like, yes, the reply garnered a lot of criticism. I actually don't really know how the first dream was received, to be honest. I probably need to do more reading about that. But at this point in her life, when things are looking, you know, yes, controversial, but she's also made a splash. So much potentially ahead of her. She does something very strange, Alicia. Uh Does she go on a train with a bunch of other commuters and contract the plague? (laughs) Not quite. Not quite. quite. She kind of just gave it all up. (gasps) And there's kind of two theories here. Okay. So in 1694, basically she stopped writing, stopped reading, sold her library, (gasps) 4,000 books, and sold all of her collections, apparently for alms. And apparently she wrote, I, the worst of all women. And so the first theory is that she sort of, you know, gave in to these pressures around her Mm. you know Mm. gave in to the bishop and all of those men who were telling her that she was not being a proper nun and that she was not religious enough and that she was you know spending too much of her time on these earthly concerns and that she you know was like you know what you're right I am I'm gonna give it all up and I'll sell it all for the poor and I'll donate everything and that's how I'm gonna make good with God The other theory, which I'm more inclined to believe, is that her defiance towards the church and her unwillingness to give it all up and her unwillingness to stop thinking about anything that was not, you know, necessarily religious led to all of her stuff being confiscated by the bishop. And so not sure which version of those events happens interesting but it's one of them (laughs) so yeah with but it's like it's such a big question because those are two very very yeah exactly you know one is her like giving up and going you know what you're right i'm not doing the right thing Mm. i'm not a good christian and also like all these worldly possessions uh you know do i need all these worldly possessions Mm. in Mm. my world yes books you do need of course you need four (laughs) thousand books that's essential. More than cheese. Yeah, more, more than cheese. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. That's a really, there's a huge gap there. Yeah. Because the other version is her just like defiantly like going, no, fuck you. I'm not going to shut up. And then they come and take everything mm. from her mm. to shut her up. Well, I suppose <laughs> it depends on what happens next. Well, unfortunately, next what happened Uh-oh. is the plague. She does contract <laughs> the plague. Yeah. And so we don't really know what she would have done after this and whether, mm. you know, because if they had been confiscated, maybe she would have kept writing. Yeah, anyway. exactly. That's what I was going to say. I was like, if her, her yeah. writing just stopped altogether after this, then that would suggest that, yes, it was actually a, a conscious decision mm. she was making to step away from it. But if she did continue on to write, then it might suggest that it was actually something that was forced yeah. upon her. Well, there are accounts that she kind of 
gave herself up to religious penance and that she started becoming much more devout. But again, I mean, she lived in a convent. What else is there to do if they take away all of your books? Yeah, that's right. Flagellate yourself. <laughs> but as I said, the, the plague came next. So in 1695, oh, the plague no. hit the convent and she was look, helping out all of the other sisters. She acted as a nurse for as long as she could until she succumbed to the disease herself on April 17 and she died at the age of 44. Oh, so young. I know. Imagine what more she could have written. Not so young for the 17th century, I suppose, yeah, but still, still, still quite young. Yeah. Yeah, she still had a good 20, 30 oh. years in her. And that is that question that we've come back to so many times before about like when people die at such a young age and it's like, whoa, think of all all of the writing they would have gone on to do. I mean, had she chosen to, of course, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we don't know. Choosing one of those endings and not the other. Yeah, we don't know the answer to that question. But all of that, that is lost. 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 Mm. Lost. But she, like, I do know of her. From simply just from my interest in a lot of Mexican history and Mexican culture. She I know she is on one of the peso notes. I can't remember which one. Oh really? I mean she's very famous in Mexico. Like we should say that this is maybe a novel story to anybody outside of Mexico, but it is certainly not a new story to anyone listening. I'm sure everybody in Mexico is listening going like, that's not what she did. This, it was this way. Like, yeah, she's very famous. She's on the green peso note, whatever that is. Oh, the 200 peso bill. Ah, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I she is a figure that I have encountered before in terms of knowing her importance culturally, but her actual you know, her life story, complete mystery. So it's Mm. fascinating to learn. Actually, just kind of what a a life of sort of forked paths, I suppose she had in a lot of ways. Yeah, Like there were so many moments where her life could have diverged into anything really, you know, like especially as a young woman when the world has kind of opened up to her. And yes, you know, like, marriage is not what she wanted but also just to think of the choices that she had among that ruling elite Mm. and Mm. what you know the choices she could have made there that would have set her up comfortably for life yeah and then yeah and then the choices she makes as a writer and as a theologian as well like essentially like those choices to step outside of the normal doctrine and to speak out and to say what others perhaps are too scared to consider or too scared to put these ideas out there because (laughs) they sound, either they sound blasphemous or they sound simply bonkers. And then to mix it with the arts more liberally and more broadly to simply write Love poetry for the fuck of it. I know. Or comedies for the fuck of it. Where I feel that you get both. Yeah. What a fascinating individual. Mm. Like, Mm. I think just her voracious interest in everything is what I find so fascinating about her. To be honest, it also doesn't surprise me that she spent a lot more time writing into the arts than she did writing. I mean, obviously, she did do religious writing as well, but her Mm. focus on the arts really comes back to that idea that we talked about at the start of the podcast that this idea of going into a religious life 
actually mm. kind of mm-hmm. just gave you the opportunity yeah. to do some other stuff. So yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody joins a comment because they really love. Comments. Yeah. So exactly. So like how pious really was she? I mean, she obviously had, yeah. she had theories on God. She had plenty of theories on religion, but clearly that's actually not really what was driving her. I feel nah, like nah. what was driving her. I think she just wanted to keep men's hands off of her. Yeah, she wanted to keep hands <laughs> off. Just leave me alone. And Let me read my books. I want to write. I want to read and I want to write about yeah. what I want to read and write about. Like mm-hmm. a woman after our she own heart. an intellectual freedom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for taking us to... Well, she is actually a figure who has been suggested to us a number of times. She's one of those ones who we get tweets and messages about you know, every now and then. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're going to get to it. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's on the list. Yeah. She's been on the list for a very long time. Like so, so many um, of the other women. Yeah. yeah. It was time. Hooray. Well, I'm glad we got around to her at this juncture. And who knows where we're going next time. Do I know where I'm going? Yeah. Do you know? Oh, actually, yes, I think I do know where I'm going okay, next good. time. I think. Oh, sorry, everyone. We'll see if you change your mind. Um, We'll see if, we change my, if I change my mind. <laughs> but we might be going to the 1890s again. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. All right. That's fine. We've, we've, it's been a few weeks. It's fine. Everybody, everybody loves the <laughs> 1890s. We love them. We do. They're fine. They're a good time. We've had a break. Yeah. And, of course, you know, if you love the 1890s that much, we've got plenty of other episodes in the vault that you can listen to that are set in the 1890s. Yeah. I won't even bother to list them all. They're all just there. <laughs> there are also a bunch of them on Patreon as well. If you do want to join us for as little as $2 a month, you can listen to a whole bunch of extra episodes, such as the most recent one, Mary of Egypt. If you're interested in more weirdly religious ladies yeah. who stories also involve very helpful lions, um, <laughs> loaves of bread in the desert, weird stuff. Yeah, weird stuff. We've done quite a few nuns this season, actually, haven't we? Yeah. It's been the season of the nun. Season of the yes. nun. <laughs> yes. Not the season of the witch, the season, Not the of, season the of the witch. We like to shake things up a bit. And we also have some new Patreon content coming out very, very shortly. And if you want to buy a t shirt or a pin, you can find us on Etsy. And, of course, if you can't afford to financially support us, we totally understand. We can barely financially support ourselves. So (laughs) (laughs) feel free to, uh, instead of giving us monetary support, lend us your voices. Lend lend (laughs) us your ears. No, well, you're already doing that. And rate and review us and leave us a five-star review. That would be Mm. brilliant. That's super duper helps and in the meantime a very big thank you as always to brendan davies for the sound to india hui for the music and to dan our executive producer and we hope that you all stay very safe and very well until we and off of trains trains. although you know (laughs) sometimes you just need to catch that public transport (laughs) and we'll see you right back here in another fortnight goodbye bye